Grady's very kind, of course, he said that the little issue he had was me. It was my fault. I gave him the wrong scripture reading and uh, never changed it on the slide. So um, before I start, I just wanted to, um, first of all, thank you for uh, seeing what we need to do and complying with our new requirements as you had. I just want to let you know that uh, I'm tired of it, and I know you are too. Really, I know you are too. Um, and the board knew, and the elders knew, and our, our medical consultants knew, we all knew, but we also still have not wavered in almost 22 months of this now, uh, that the best way to be able to continue to love our neighbors as ourselves is to protect them as best as we can. And so for me, um, I'm reluctantly, extremely reluctantly, trying to look at this as the minor inconvenience that it really is. But um, again, it's temporary, it's fluid, and I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for, uh, for being willing to do so. The other thing I want to thank you for is that um, thinking that we were on the tail end of this, you know, and everyone started to uh, get a little hope and a little more energy and everything, and now all of a sudden we seem to be where we were last summer. Um, I, I, I'd like to give you just one little word of encouragement, and that is this, is that um, maybe that which is giving us encouragement, the lesson we're supposed to be learning is that having it the way that we think that we should have it maybe not be the blessing that we think it is. And I'm not one to think that, uh, that a pandemic, that an entire pandemic in the horrible cost that it has been is simply here to teach us a lesson. I hope that uh, we're not that self-centered in this cosmos, although we are human and extremely self-centered. But... Um, and I'll just give you uh, the example of, of me myself, is that um, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm absolutely exhausted. And I have found that well over 70% of what I used to do and be able to do before all of this started last year, um, I just don't, I don't have the energy for anymore. I don't have the, uh, the, the the feeling for anymore, and I truly don't feel called. I think the one blessing that I feel is, is that um, it has shown me what truly is important. And what's important is the gospel. What's important is God's presence still here, even when it appears that he may have withdrawn a little bit. But he is here, isn't he? And so I just wanted to thank you. I wanted to thank you because the one thing that has been constant in all of this and probably has given me even more passion and fulfillment is preaching and teaching. And I want to thank you for that because if I didn't have anybody to preach to and to study with, I wouldn't be able to do that. And so I wanted to thank you. And I'm not sure I ever thanked the church before for uh, allowing me, you know, to exercise what I 
what I truly believe I've been called to do. Um, everything else, like I said, I'm, uh, I know that you know the troubles that uh, I've had and, and everything in the past couple of months, and I appreciate your prayers, I really do. Uh, but when it comes to this, when it comes to the gospel, I'm more convicted than ever. Um, and uh, I hope that we all can be convicted with this, that this here, the word, this is what we're here for. So thank you again, um, everybody. We make a transition when we ended chapter 17, and I just read this verse last week, and I didn't talk too much about it, but I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to just make sure that we knew how this prayer ended, this prayer that Jesus prays to God for his disciples. For, in the immediate time frame, those 11 guys sitting right there that heard this prayer the first time that it was prayed, I just wanted to note how it was concluded before we go on. Father, I desire that those also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. His desire has never changed. His desire has been since the garden. Since the garden, he came looking for his children who had decided to hide and to run from him as far as possible, and he came looking for him. His desire was then to be with his children. His desire now is to be with them. That's not worth it, amen? Okay, all right. I know, I know. We're all tired, aren't we? Where I am to see my glory. I want them to see my glory, he says, which you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, and that is the glory that it is. That is the glory that the Father has loved him, and by the way, he, he revealed to us in a chapter before this prayer that he loves us before the foundation of the world. The Father himself loves you. That is the glory of God, is his love. Amen. Righteous Father, the world doesn't know you. Why? Why doesn't the world know? Because the world don't know, doesn't know what love is. The world thinks they know what love is. And, and by the way, sometimes the church doesn't know what love is. And the church thinks we know, think we know what love is. Right? But he says the world doesn't know you. And these that you and these know, these know, these guys, they know. And by the way, how is it those 11 guys know the love of God? He's sitting right in front of them saying these words right now. Here he is. And the word became flesh and walked among us. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known. Everything that he's done up until now is simply to make his name known, to make the name of the Father known to them right there. And he says, and I will make it known. Something's about to happen that will make it known again, which is where we will find our transition today so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And that's how he concludes that prayer. And that absolutely to me is unbelievable. It began with love, righteous father, and it ends with love. That I, that they may be loved, that my love, your love that's in me would be in them and I in them. So there's one desire is to be with us.
The world doesn't know God. Jesus was sent to show them. First, he shows it to these disciples, and then they will show the world. And how will they do it? The love of the Father that lives in them, we are called simply to love the world. That love that is in us, we are asked to love others. That's all we've been asked to do. We're his hands, we're his feet, we're his words. The word became flesh. And by the way, it becomes flesh every day, every morning. Every morning when you wake up and ask for something spiritual today, you ask for God's presence in your life, the word becomes flesh again, and it walks out with you when you walk out the door. And it's just asking for somebody to love. The love that the Father loves the Son will be in them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everybody would believe in him and be able to have eternal life and never what? And never perish. Gave. He gave. Jesus was given to us. It was given to the world. The disciples... Uh, up until now may have known what his love was. They've heard the love. They've heard the words. They've seen it in action, but really we'll find out in the next three chapters as we conclude the Gospel of John that they really don't know really what it is until tomorrow. They didn't have a clue until it is about to be proven to them once and for all. John 18 begins the narrative of Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. As we make this transition, as we begin to speak, and, and uh, I don't know if I can stress this enough, but begin to speak about the one event that may be the most famous event, or let's just say the most notorious event in all human history, the cross and the resurrection that John has a different perspective on it. Because again, John has had 70 more years than those other 11 guys, those other 10 guys there. He's had about 70 more years to contemplate this. He's had 70 more years of experience of trying to put that love into the world. So when he comes to tell the story, he has a little bit different reason for doing so. Dr. John Pauline, in his Bible Amplifier series uh, edition on John, says that with other events in Jesus' ministry, John has a very different description of the events because he has a different reason for reporting them. So you all ready to begin this narrative? Let's do it. John 18 Jesus says, after he'd spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. There's a big difference in the telling of this between John and the other gospels. 
I might slip and call the other gospels the synoptic gospels. You ever heard the word synoptic before? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels because they have a lot in common. You find about 90% of each of the gospel in each of theirs, so they call them synoptic. They're kind of synchronized. They were all written within, probably within 20 years of each other. Uh, uh, one was written, uh, two of them are written by non-eyewitnesses. One was only a witness, but amazingly, there's about 90% of each other's material in it, they all almost sound the same. So if I say synoptics, I'm talking about the, the narrative, if you will, of the trial of, of, of Gethsemane and, and, and the resurrection and the crucifixion and all of it. I'm talking about reading it in there and then reading it in the Gospel of John. There's already a big difference immediately. Only John mentions that the place is a garden. Matthew and Luke say it's a place called Gethsemane. Luke says they went to the Mount of Olives. John also says that they met there how often? Often. They met there how? They met there often. Jesus and his disciples met there often. Gardens, if you're going to picture of garden, don't picture the garden in your backyard, although I would imagine there are a lot of large gardens. Gardens were commercial. When you, when you think garden in the first century, think farm, not garden. And that the Garden of Gethsemane is, is, could be the entire side of the Mount of Olives, and it was called the Mount of Olives for a reason. It was covered with olive trees. And we don't know how big the Garden of Gethsemane was. But it was public, what John is saying, and it was known. You with me? It was public, and it was known. Notice no description of Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. John doesn't feel that he needs to bring that up again, not at least in this narrative and in this telling. Verse three says, so Judas brought a detachment of soldiers, a cohort, if you will, together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. John is the only one that mentions there were police and there were soldiers. According to John, there are three characters in this narrative now, three groups of characters, if you will. Roman soldiers, and it says that there was a detachment, a cohort, if you will. It's translated as battalion. Now, I've looked up several times. Wikipedia has four different definitions of battalion if you want to take a look. If you want to Google a Roman cohort, it has never been one size for very long. But I want to tell you, it is anywhere between 400 and 1,000 soldiers. If it's the one cohort that everyone thinks about, it was at least 480 and 480 was made up of six, uh, what we would call platoons. That's not what they called them. They called them, um, I, I, the names left me, it's not important. And each was in charge, each had a centurion in charge. That means that there could have been 480 soldiers and six centurions coming after this little country rabbi and his 11-member rabbinic school. On top of that, temple police, and we're not told how much of the temple guard went with them. And who's the third character in all of this? One of his own disciples, Judas. Why is John telling it this way? Why is he, why is he uh, bringing it across to us? Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, was that? Jesus knowing what? 
Is anything that's about to happen going to take Jesus by surprise? No. Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and they fell to the ground. By the way, not told in the other tellings. Jesus moves forward to meet them. They don't come to him. He goes to them. John says, this is the way that it happened. He didn't wait. He pictures Judas standing with them. He leaves out the kiss of betrayal. Again, there's a reason that he does. It doesn't fit with his narrative. It's not the story he wants told. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But he asks them who they're looking for. And when they tell him, he says these words, I am he. And in Greek, literally what he said was, I am We put the he in to clarify it in English. But ego eimi in Greek is simply I am. And when he utters those words, what happened to the soldiers? They fell. They step back and fall. He knocked them on there. It's Sabbath. Easy. It happens quite often when those words are used. As long as God is the one using them. I say I am, not much happens. Who are you? I am. Nothing happens, right? Nothing happens, right? When God says it, stuff happens. When God says it, something happens. It it happens when undiluted divinity meets humankind, if you will. Meets them in their daily walk, if you will, or whatever they are seeking to do. Psalm 56, verse 8 talks about it. Psalm 56 says, You've kept count of my tossings, Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? What is the psalmist saying about God? How much does he know? If he knows every one of my tossings and turnings, if he's counted every one of our tears and put them in a bottle somewhere, what does he know? How much does he know about you? Are they not in your record? Then, acknowledging that, Omniscience, acknowledging that omnipresence, acknowledging that supreme power. Then my enemies will retreat in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. He speaks the words, I am, and something happens. His divinity smacks the fallen humanity. And for just a brief moment, he's got their attention. In fact, he does it again. He asks again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I told you that I am he, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. There's a little country rabbi, this tiny little country rabbi from Nazareth. He's got 11 guys with him. Stands before what could be up to 2,000 soldiers, and he commands them. He tells them, and what does he tell them? Let them go. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you're looking for. If you're looking for me, let these men go. In Matthew and Mark, the disciples actually flee after he's arrested. Here, Jesus commands that the disciples be released. 
John says nothing of their fleeing. The command probably was respected. Let me ask you this. 2,000 soldiers, 11 guys, most of them fishermen, all standing around. Do you think if they tried to escape, they would be able to? No. The reason that they're, when we get to the trial, out there, and Jesus is the one arrested, is because I think the soldiers did what he asked. He knocked them on the ground with just two words. So when he says, let my disciples go, let these men go, they did it. They did it. This is what John remembers about that night. He goes, we didn't flee. We didn't run. There was nowhere to run if we wanted to. Oh, and we wanted to. The reason we got away is because Jesus commanded it. He was looking out for us. The good shepherd always looks out for his what? Always looks out for his sheep. And John adds, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Not to them. Not to Rome. Not to the temple guard. Not to the chief priests and the scribes. He didn't lose them to them. And he fulfilled prophecy in doing so. So he not only shows his authority over all, but especially those who belong to him. God has authority over everything and everybody, but he is especially over us, those who belong to him. We can call on that authority anytime. Isn't that wonderful? It's ours. Jesus made it ours. As I said, though, the disciples don't understand. The disciples don't get it. And they show in their actions, especially Peter, the head disciple. Simon Peter, who had a sword, he drew it, struck it, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and their Jewish police the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. John's the only one that mentions names. He's the only one that knows who Malchus' name is. Again, it's information that John has writing years later. Maybe when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote it, nobody knew what his name was. John knows what his name is, and he wants to make sure that we know it. He wants to put a face on this. Because maybe everybody knows him now. He commands that the sword be put away. By the way, who was it that told him it was okay to bring the sword? Jesus did. Remember? They asked him. He asked, how many swords do we got? Peter says two. Jesus then says, it's enough. What did Peter hear when he heard that? <laughs> uh, obviously something different than what Jesus had in mind because the second that he tries to use it, Jesus tells him to what? Put it away, man. Put it away. Am I not supposed to be here? Am I not supposed to drink this cup? Remember, Peter was the one that told him this wasn't going to happen. Now Peter's actually trying to prevent it from happening. He doesn't have a clue now than when he first told him. And here it is unfolding. It's happening right in front of him. Peter thinks he's going to fight his way out of this. By the way, nice shot, fisherman. Swung at an unarmed kid. Why not take a swipe at one of the six centurions that are standing there? 
Anyway, what do all these differences add up to? The difference between John's remembering of this and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What do they all add up to? See, what's already, you have to think about what's already then circulating around by the end of the first century. We used, we talked about this in prayer meeting. I used this example. It's been, how many years has it been since 1963? See, 43, 2003, 53. It's been a while, right? It's been a while. How many theories are there out there and how many details are there out there conflicting and not conflicting about the assassination of John Kennedy? It's been nearly the same amount of time. And we're talking about the most famous event in all human history. What do you think's floating around? What kind of rumors do you think is floating around? What kind of conspiracy theories have been out and about? What do you think's going on? John's got to address those, doesn't he? This is why he writes the way he does. And probably the overarching narrative, especially what people have gathered from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is not cutting it. So he wants to tell this narrative. I'll give you a clue of one of the stories of why the opposition, at least, by the end of the first century, the opposition to these guys still preaching that Jesus was somehow God. Listen to the opposition. There is a Roman opponent to the way, to the Christian way, uh, who reports a Jew uh, telling him, reports a Jewish citizen telling him. So understand this. This is a Roman opponent of Christianity, okay, making a report and using this report from one of Jesus' fellow Jews or one of the disciples' fellow Jews from Israel. You with me? Here's what he says. This, this, this uh, Jewish man says, how could we have held him for a God who, as we heard, produced none of the works which he proclaimed? And when we convicted him and condemned him and wanted to punish him, he hid himself and tried to, dis tried to escape in a most ignominious way, was seized and betrayed by none other than those whom he called his disciples. He couldn't picture there's absolutely no way that they could picture that a God would allow this to happen. You hear what he's saying? He can't be God. And the very act, the very act that he does to prove to everybody God so loved the world is the very act that is now being used against him. If he were God, he couldn't be arrested. If he were God, he couldn't be betrayed by one of his own followers. If he were God, they would have fought for him. If he were God, he could neither have fled nor be let off bound, least of all be left in the lurch and abandoned by his companions who shared everything with him and had him as teacher and held him to be the savior and son and messenger of the most high God. Everything, all of the love and the very love that he showed for them is now being used against him in this argument simply because this Bible student cannot get his mind around the fact that this is God. This is just part of what's being said by his opponents. So John reports it differently. 
John says, anybody who thought that he was trapped, anybody who thought that he was a victim, anybody who thought that this was beyond his control, you are sorely mistaken, he says. Jesus was in full control of this situation. He fulfills a statement that John already made back in 10, uh, chapter 10 in the parable or the story or the illustration, if you will, of the good shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. Who does it? He does it. Nobody took it from me, he said. Nobody will take it from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus is the one who starts this process. Not a kiss by one of his disciples themselves. Why do the others include it? Is because it was part of the narrative. John isn't saying that it didn't happen. John just says that people have been interpreting this wrong. People have been thinking that Judas' kiss is the one that set this off. John is saying, you know what? Judas wouldn't have been able to betray him with a kiss if Jesus had not been willing to be betrayed with a kiss. Jesus is in control in this narrative, isn't he? Notice the garden is public. Judas knew the place. How does he know where to lead them? He's been there before. He knows exactly where they're going. If Jesus was looking to escape arrest, as that testimony said about him, that he escaped arrest, would he go somewhere public? He picked public because he knew that Judas knew he'd be there. No anguish. He's fully in control. I'm not saying that the anguish in Gethsemane didn't happen. Father, let this cup pass from me. John is just saying, you're interpreting it wrong. You're making it sound like he was unwilling to do this. No, he said those words out loud, the same reason that he prayed that prayer in 17 is so we could hear the words. So that we could know what he's going through. You're interpreting it wrong if you think that he was unwilling He could have escaped. He could have walked away when his, uh, when his divinity flashed through and incapacitated them, right? Except they wake up and he's still standing there. And then does it again. Who are you looking for? Jesus was in control all the while. His death was completely voluntary. They never could have arrested him had he not allowed it. And the only guys that don't get it on this whole scene are his own disciples. Especially who? Especially Peter. It's funny what his followers do even though he's in control. His followers see what's happening and they see it as being completely what? Out of control. So Peter begins to fight. He's going to take control. <laughs> By the way, the one thing that we learn in recovery real quick. The reason I'm in trouble and needing recovery is because I was in control. And every time I take control, I drive it right into the ditch. First step, my life has become unmanageable. 
And the reason it's unmanageable is because I'm the one that keeps trying to manage it. So usually when we take control, as with Peter, we end up causing Jesus more pain and we end up hurting somebody else. Just something to think about today. First they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. See, Luke and Acts refer to him as Annas the high priest. John says that Annas and Caiaphas were both high priests. I can tell you this, according to history, Dr. Pauline points it out, that Annas had been deposed, uh, had been high priest for nine years, from the year 6 to the year 15 CE. He was deposed by Valerius Gratus, the governor who came just before Pilate. Five of his sons and a grandson, as well as Caiaphas, his son-in-law, all became high priests. One family is controlling the high priesthood for a few generations now. As a matter of fact, it's so corrupt, they're not even bothering hiding it now. They took him to Annas because apparently somebody in the cohort felt that Annas was high priest. There are others who feel Caiaphas is the high priest. Literally in, 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 in verse 24, did I put it? Yes. Literally you could read this. Then Annas, the high priest, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And how do we know that that's corrupt? How long was a high priest supposed to serve? Until he died. Until he died. So how is it that this happened? Rome happened. That's what happened. Annas' family got in good with Rome, and they began to enforce their, their, their hold on it. I, I would. I would liken this family to an underworld crime family is what I would. They've got a hold of it, and there isn't anybody, any, anybody can do about it. There isn't anything that anybody could do about it. So notice before the hearing begins, back in verse 14, I'll go back, I'll take a chance. Back in verse 14, it says, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. Annas, obviously, in, in maybe, I don't know, in maybe uh, easing his guilt just a little bit, says, I won't make this decision on my own, I'm going to send him to Caiaphas, because Caiaphas is actually the acting high priest this year. But John reminds us who, who Caiaphas is. Caiaphas was the one who said that it was better to have one person die in our scripture reading. So who's already made up his mind before the trial has begun? The one who's going to render the judgment. John's letting you know that this trial may not be on the what? On the up and up. He's already telling us that. So Simon Peter and his other disciple and the, another disciple followed Jesus since the disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside the gate. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. So now picture that, because the narrative is about to split. It's going to split between the trial and the courtyard. John is going to take you back and forth between the courtyard and the trial. We're not 100% sure who the other disciple is. It has been disputed over the years. I have no problem saying it's John because John refers him to himself as the other disciple in many other places. Consider his relationship with Peter. They're both the ones that have been fighting over who's the greatest, right? And it makes sense that John would know the high priest. You know why? 
because his father is a Pharisee. Zebedee is a Pharisee. As a matter of fact, we begin to speculate in prayer meeting and we'll never know the answer until we get to the kingdom and ask him. But I'm wondering if John's father is in that trial right now. Which might be another reason why John stays outside. I don't know. Interesting to think about. So the narrative goes from the trial now, first to this first time with Peter, the woman says to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter says what? Nope, I am not. I will die for you. I'll die with you, Lord, even when they all fall away. His first opportunity and what happened? I don't even know him, I'm not. The slaves, the police, made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing around and warming themselves. That's why he says what he says. He's surrounded by who? He's surrounded by police. What does he not want to say right now? That he belongs to the guy that got arrested. Because he's afraid he's going to be arrested too, isn't he? I am not, he says. The narrative, like I said, is now split between Peter and the court, Peter and the trial, if you will. Jesus is inside facing the officials. Peter is on the outside facing down people who keep pointing out that he belongs to Jesus. And Peter keeps saying what? Nope, I don't. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. When reading all the gospel accounts, yes, there are some things wrong here. There are some things wrong here. According to the Talmud, according to a trial, a capital trial, if you will, not just any trial, but a capital trial, one where somebody may be sentenced to death, okay? Here's what's happening. Here's here's all the violations, according to the Talmud, is, is going on. No capital trial was supposed to be held at night. They're holding at night. Uh, you couldn't hold it on the eve of a holy day. What's tomorrow, by the way? All right, what was last night? Passover, right? So no, not on the eve of a holy day. Uh, it doesn't have the minimal attendance of the council. We know in one of the other accounts, one of the guys stands up and says, where's the rest of the council? By the way, it's the reason they're holding it at night. It's the reason why it was a rule about holding it at night. They needed to make sure that everybody would get there. It's in an irregular location. It's at the high priest's headquarters. It's not at the place where they would normally hold a trial. And Caiaphas questions who? He only talks to Jesus. He only questions Jesus. He does not call for any defense witnesses. In fact, here in John, that's the most obvious, is that Annas questions Jesus himself. High priest would not question the accused. A Jewish judge would never question the accused. They were supposed to question eyewitnesses. And when these witnesses agreed on all the essentials, what septenet it was, and septenet usually is, uh, think of a presidential term. A septenet is usually seven years Okay, back then it was. But think about, you know, during an administration or during a reign, September, they would agree on that. What year, what month, what day of the month, what day of the week, what time, what place. Those two witnesses had to agree to the letter on every one of those, and only then could somebody be pronounced guilty. 
deserving death. The accused testimony mattered how much? None. That's awfully wise for the first century, isn't it? The rabbis would not allow a person potentially to be condemned to bear false witness of himself. He would not allow, they would not allow, the law would not allow for them to possibly condemn themselves with their own testimony. It's almost impossible. It was almost impossible for the state, if you will, to kill somebody. As soon as they found those two independent witnesses that agreed on all of that, then they could be pronounced guilty. Then they could bring the death sentence because the law was clear. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of one person. Didn't matter what the accused testified, so the accused didn't testify. To me, that's the most insidious thing about this. Caiaphas isn't asking anybody else anything. He's not calling for any witnesses. He asked Jesus directly. And also because I think Caiaphas is pretty sure he can get Jesus to talk. All I have to do is get him to utter the same words or something like the same words that I've heard him utter before, and I'll have him. So Jesus is aware of it, and he answers. He's <laughs> not supposed to, but he answers. I've spoken openly to the world. What? In secret? No. I've spoken openly to the world. I taught in synagogues in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I've said to them. They know what I said. Jesus is aware of all that's happening, and he's demanding a proper trial, isn't he? I didn't say anything secret. I've taught to all the Jews in all the synagogues, the temple. I've been everywhere where they are. He puts two and two together. This secret arrest, Annas questioning only him about his teachings, he knows what they're trying to do. They're trying to convict him of being a false prophet because it is the one charge that brings what? Death. Jesus puts it together. We'll talk a lot about this between now and the trial with Pilate. But it's exactly what they're trying to do, is to convict him of being a false prophet. By the way, it's why he questioned them about his disciples. Do you have followers? If you've got followers, you are now a false prophet. Deuteronomy 13.6 says, if anyone secretly entices you, even if it's your brother, your father's son, or your mother's son, or your own son or daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your most intimate friend, saying, let us go worship other gods whom neither you nor your ancestors have known, any of the gods of the peoples that are around you, whether near you or far away from the other end of the earth, from one end of the earth to the other. False prophets have to act in secret. You can't do this out loud. You can't do this around and possibly be discovered. Nobody around you can possibly know what you're doing if you're a false prophet and you're trying to lead people away from God. So why does Annas incriminate Jesus into this? Why a false prophet? Deuteronomy goes further to say, you must not yield or heed to any such persons. Show them no pity or compassion. Do not shield them, but you shall surely kill them. Your own hand shall be first against them to execute them, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Stone them to death 
for trying to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. If they can find him guilty of this, they can kill him legally with no retribution. No one could say anything. No one could challenge it. It's right there in the law. So Jesus asked, go ask who've hurt me. Do what's prescribed in the law. Do what you know you're supposed to do. Find the witnesses. Ask them what I said. Jesus is actually saying, stop this sham right now. But Jesus knew what they would do, didn't he? Didn't he know this was going to happen? So why did he let it happen? Why did he let it happen? See, because I can feel pretty good about knowing uh, Jewish history and Jewish law, and I can feel pretty good standing up here and make it sound like I've got, you know, authority and everything. Jesus is actually saying, my father and I, we knew that this was going to happen. We knew that when it came time to actually do the right thing, there wasn't a human on earth that could do it. What he's doing here is reminding us that we all need saving. God's people, not God's people, they're all involved in this, aren't they? And how do they react? How do they react when they've been called out knowing that this trial is crooked? Well, look what happens. When he said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus on the face, saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if I've spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. If I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? It's the high priest that did this. It's the high priest, the one who's supposed to be the holiest person on earth. If anybody knows what's right from wrong, it's supposed to be the high priest. And what does he do? Does he allow himself to be convicted? Does he allow himself to stand up and say, you know what, you're right, this is a sham of a trial. We've been wor so worried about you, we've been trying to kill you ever since Lazarus. Does he confess? Does he ask for forgiveness? No. The voice of love is slapped right in the face. If I've spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? He's not bugged about being struck. He's talking about human nature there. When we get confronted with our absolute sinfulness, we've got a choice, don't we? We can either kill the pride fall on our knees and ask for forgiveness, or we could leave the pride there and we could slap the accuser. We could slap the one bringing the message. Why do you ask me? Go ask those who have heard. And that's where we come in, because guess what? Who are the people that have heard the word? It's us now, isn't it? Go ask those who have heard. What is our testimony now today about all of this? As I said, 
We look back at it. We look at the events, dissect it. I bring a little history. I do this. I feel good about myself because I might know something that somebody else doesn't. And all of a sudden, we're just treating this as we would treat any other study about what's happening. And what's happening here is so much more crucial than any event on whether or not we have it historically accurate or not. This is our salvation here. See, it's speculated by the Jews later that the reason Jesus was executed was because no one testified on his behalf. Anyone could have, by the way. Anyone could have. Even members of the council. As far as we know, there are two in there who claim to believe, right? Nicodemus and Joseph could be inside that very trial. Do they speak up? No. John might be standing at the door. John might be inside the door. He doesn't speak up either. The one claiming to love him the most who said he would die for him is out in the courtyard denying him that he even exists three times. No one is off the hook here, are they? The world, Rome, the church, they're all there. They're all convicted under this. They're all accused of this. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's got something to do with this. The churched, the unchurched. When we begin to approach the cross, the one thing we can't do is boast on how much we know and don't know. And we certainly don't boast on how holy or how spiritual we may be or not be. See, the church in this particular situation, Israel, they can't get past their own cherished understanding of what they think the law says. So they have been intent on killing him even before the trial begins. The one who claims he is a disciple has the same problem. They all need to be born again. And by the way, the unchurched will always go along with the church. They'll believe what we tell them to believe. And they'll continue to do so, by the way, until the church decides to, to, to admit we know nothing, to bring our sin and everything and fall down at his feet and lift up him instead of some selfish understanding that I might have of what the Bible teaches and what it says. Or until the church realizes that they, can, that they are loved so that they may love that's when this will begin to change. We wring our hands and we look at the world and we say, they're just rejecting the gospel. Nobody's listening anymore. No. I think we're getting to a time now that we have to ask, not that the world has been listening and has rejected. We have to ask, has the world heard it? And my answer in the shadow of a pandemic still going on for two years? No. Because the church has had an opportunity to show the love of God during all of this, and what have we been doing? Fighting each other as to whether or not this is about faith or fear, whether or not this is about standing up for freedom, or whether or not this is love. I picture myself sometimes when I'm trying to uh, bring forth doctrine like Peter with this sword, slashing away, just swinging it, 
throwing scripture at people, throwing sermons at you. But Jesus come, we're gonna see that Peter will eventually come to Jesus, address this somewhat, not completely. And when Peter becomes born again, guess what? He finally leads the guys to go and upset the entire world and win them. Friends, family, loved ones, they're the ones that will know the love of God if we're willing to do so. A couple churches ago, I had a group uh, in the church that I was pretty contentious with. Uh, they had a lot of problems with me, and of course, that meant that I had a lot of problems with them. And I don't know who had the problems first, okay? I don't, I, I don't know that at all. But back then, when I was young and stupid, I used to say that I would give everybody a voice even when they disagreed with me, but I was young and stupid. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm just kidding. If you disagree with me, I'll still give you that voice. But what happened was, was that the, uh, this group came to me and, and they invited a speaker. They invited a guest speaker and uh, said, can he come and can he uh, do this seminar? And it was an all-weekend seminar, which means also he was to preach on Sabbath. You know, he, he spoke on Friday night and then he preached on Sabbath morning, Sabbath school and church, and then preached on Sabbath afternoon after potluck. And I'll always remember, I mean, I, I disagreed with him from the second he opened his mouth on Friday night. <laughs> I didn't say anything. By Sabbath afternoon, the crowd had kind of cleared out because we had other people. He was rather well known and there were other people from other churches that had actually had packed our church. But by Sabbath afternoon, the crowd had kind of cleared out and we, our, our little church had a balcony and I was sitting up in the balcony by ourselves and he said something that I, I there, there's this one point of this, of this uh, belief that he has that he's trying to get across, this one point. And he says that if this point, and, and, and by the way, it's about, it's about prophecy being fulfilled. It's about something that hasn't happened yet that he's so sure is going to happen. Okay, are you with me? Hasn't happened yet, but he's so sure it's going to happen. He says this about this event, these exact words. If this does not happen, and if it doesn't happen in this way, God loses the great controversy. That's how sure he was of his understanding. That's how positive he is of his understanding. That there is still a possibility after the cross, the resurrection, and the constant intervention of our high priest in heaven, he is so sure that that, after all of that, that God could still lose this. Even after the words, it is finished. By the way, if you want to know what it is, I wouldn't mind teaching a class someday about it, but uh, let me know if you're interested. I'll be happy to. I love teaching about the development of Adventist theology. I still believe good theology could save the world. 
as long as that theology is Jesus. So, what I want to take away today is that if we find ourselves approaching the cross in any other way than abjectly humble sinners, then we could be headed down the same road like Peter with a sword in our hand or like this gentleman telling it that, that God's victory in the great controversy has not been achieved yet and that uh, the church will have to do something in order to bring that about. Because that's where we are. And I think that one of the things that is so disorienting about all of this is that have you found and I found that yes, we're living in the end time, but it just isn't looking like we thought it was going to? And I'm beginning to understand that maybe this is one thing where we should be disoriented. Because then when we do, when we're disoriented, when we set aside, when I set aside my selfish understanding and I come to God and he sends me back to you and you to, to me, that our disorientation, we're allowed to be together. And we may or may not figure this out before he comes. But we can either not figure it out or figure it out together. To love as we have been loved. Welcome to the event that changed the world. Our study in John's narrative of the cross. And we'll keep going next week. Thank you again for hanging in there. Thank you again for listening and allowing me to preach. Now let's go love. Amen.